Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today is the first episode of season six. We decided to take a little break in May and June, knowing how much information is out there about COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter, and that was really important to share and to be focused on. So aside from today's episode, we've decided not to continue to bring you content that is focused on COVID-19, as there's so much of it out there already, and we're hearing from you, the listeners, that you don't really want to hear more about it. And to be honest with you, I don't really want to record that stuff, so I'm glad we're on the same page. If you follow Made Visible on Instagram, which is Made Visible Podcast, you likely saw my post a few weeks ago about how we are dedicated to sharing more stories of people of color on this show. We've had a handful of them, and hopefully you've gone and listened to them, but not enough, and my intention is to change that this season and beyond. So here we are. I'm on day 107 of living with my parents. I gave up my apartment in New York City last month, and like all of you, we have no idea when this pandemic will come to an end. So knowing many states are reopening right now and many people are semi-getting back to normal, hopefully wearing masks, hopefully social distancing, it doesn't really affect me, as I'm sure it doesn't really affect those of you who are also immunocompromised. So today, I wanted to bring back my doctor, Dr. Alexandra Freeman from the National Institute of Health, to talk about the state of the world today, especially how it relates to those of us who are immunocompromised. So welcome, Dr. Freeman. Thank you very much for having me. So happy to have you back. So your original episode aired uh, episode number 24 in 2018, but I wanted to bring you back on to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic since we're all majorly living through that right now and talk a little bit about how it affects those of us who are immunocompromised. Can you give us a little refresher on who you are and what you do at the NIH? Yes. So my training is in pediatric infectious diseases, but since I came to the NIH and joined this group, which was back in 2005, I see people that have some sort of genetic reason that predisposes them to infections. Got it. And how long have you been at the NIH? I came to the NIH in 2004. And for one year, I did pediatric HIV work. And then I switched in 2005 to my current kind of focus on immune deficiencies and hyper IgE symptoms. And you have been my rock since 2012, <laughs> yeah. which I, I know, appreciate. It's been a while. It has been a while. I can't even imagine my life without you. Well, thank you. Truly. So let's dig into this. I mean, I don't want to go back and talk about the last three months. I really want to focus on where we're at right now, because, you know, a lot of cities and countries are starting to reopen right now and people are starting to go back to their old lives or start this new norm, whatever we want to refer to it as. And I think those of us who are immunocompromised, like me, don't really know what to do with that information. How does it affect us? So I'm wondering your thoughts on 
what it means to patients that you have, people like me, and probably many of my listeners, what it means that these states are reopening and how it should affect us and any of our changes in our lifestyle. I mean, right now we're in this weird period of time where everything has been um, going on longer than we all thought it would be back in March when everything shut down. And several states made the decision to, you know, more kind of aggressively move forward. And we're seeing some of those states kind of going in the wrong direction right now. So I think for everybody right now, it's kind of this period of time where people don't know exactly, you know, what reopening really should look like. And especially for people that have underlying health conditions, we all need to take a step back and say, you know, this new normal is not going to be going back and um, hanging out like we used to do. Everyone's got to be a lot more careful for a long period of time because, you know, even though states are reopening, there's still plenty of cases and there's still plenty of people that can get in a lot of trouble with this. So I think we all need to view reopening as, yeah, some of the hospitals have some space now, but, you know, there's still that possibility of getting sick at this point. So in terms of people that are immune compromised, first of all, we're all learning about this virus like every day, right? I mean, it's new for everybody um, and everyone's trying to do the best they can do. But one of the kind of funny things is, you know, what exactly is the risk for people that are immune compromised? And I think we really don't know. And, you know, it's listed as one of the higher risk conditions. But I think when you think about the illness, when people have COVID-19, the virus is causing some lung disease and sore throats and, you know, headaches or maybe some diarrhea and the, all those different types of symptoms. And, you know, if your immune system can't control the virus, all that initial part could conceivably be worse, depending on kind of what's going on with the immune system. You know, whereas there's certain parts of the immune systems that we rely on more to kill viruses than other parts. For instance, some people don't make antibodies very well. Well, that seems to be playing less of a role than kind of the T lymphocytes, which are part of the immune system, that may be playing a bigger role in controlling the virus. But the kind of second half of this infection seems to be driven in part by kind of an overactive immune response. And a lot of the studies that are going on around the world are kind of focused on that part. It's the people in the ICU that have this horrible, horrible kind of inflammatory conditions. And those people are actually, you know, being treated with different measures to decrease that inflammatory response, make them more immune compromised. People that are immune compromised may have more trouble initially. They may be a little bit more, less susceptible in some ways to the second half. The other thing is when people are immune compromised, sometimes part of the immune system is not working that well and some parts are overactive. So some people with primary immune deficiencies also have autoimmune disease where it's like overactive in some ways. So you know, I just think it's all really, really tricky to understand the risks. There's been some studies, for instance, looking at kids with cancer who are getting chemotherapy, where although there's been some bad outcomes, you know, for the most part, some of those kids and some adults, you know, that are undergoing cancer therapies really haven't done worse than you would expect. But because we really don't know, and because people that are immune compromised could potentially have this kind of more difficult first half of the illness, I think that population of people has been more careful throughout. So we have a lot less data. And I think we all feel like all those people should continue to be more careful. You know, we don't want to be the ones to find out that it's going to be worse for, you know, people with different problems in their immune systems. 
Yeah. And I think there is already information out there about a lot of people who had underlying conditions and then got COVID and it didn't go so well. So I think I reached out to you months ago saying, how are your other patients doing? And at that point, you said everyone's staying home. So no one's, you know, getting affected. They're all home. Right, exactly. And that's still been mostly the case. You know, of the few hundred people that I follow that have primary immune deficiencies, only one has had a confirmed case. And this was a child that actually has had a lot of trouble with different viral infections, but did really, I mean, barely got sick from this. Um, And it's a kid that's been hospitalized with flu and other things. So we're all kind of surprised. But you know, that's one person. So you don't know, like, I mean, we just don't know. I think people are really trying to limit their exposures. So we're not getting the information, but we really don't want to test it, you know, um, and find out. So, so I think we all worry about it. And it's just kind of one of those unknowns, because there's so few patients right now that are immune compromised that are getting sick from this. But um, I'm sure there will be more and more just because this is going on longer and longer. And people are you know, having to go out a little bit. But uh, I do think that population should be extra careful, just like the older people should be extra careful and the people with diabetes and heart disease and uh, the kind of known risk factors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's really become a every man, every woman for themselves kind of thing, where everyone's deciding what is best for them and what's right for them. So One of the things I wonder from you is I've done some research trying to understand why it's important to wear a mask and stay six feet apart, not just one or the other. And I haven't fully understood what the deal is there. Can you explain why it's important to do both of these things? Yeah. And I think the mask recommendations have really changed over time. I think the longer we're kind of getting to know this virus, I think it's becoming more and more clear that the spread is really from person to person. And there's a lot of use of the words kind of is this droplet, is this aerosol? And, you know, it's probably somewhere in between. You know, a lot of the transmission is from like the virus being stuck in the little droplets of water or whatever that come out of your mouth when you talk or more so when you sing or yell or cough and sneeze and all that. But then the aerosolization is talking about more when there's kind of small particles of virus that can more hang out in the air for longer periods of time. And when people are talking about, you know, how important it is to wear a mask, the mask is really to block you transmitting it to somebody else for the typical mask that we all wear, a regular surgical mask or the cloth mask. That's really to try to stop any of the droplets from escaping kind of your mouth and your nose so that they get stuck in the fabric or whatever. Um, The stronger masks, like the N95 mask, they, if they're properly fitted, can actually prevent the virus from then entering the person who's wearing the mask into their nose or into their throat and lungs. So there's kind of the two different masks approach. But, you know, there's not a lot of N95 masks available. You know, it's really hard to be in an N95 mask all the time just because it's hard to breathe, honestly, in those for a long period of time. So most of the time, people out and about, including myself, are wearing just a regular cloth or surgical mask. So in terms of why it's important then to both limit, you know, your distance as well as wearing a mask, because, I mean, we're wearing masks that aren't perfect, right? Although the droplets are getting stuck, there can still be some transmission of the virus kind of escaping from the mask. A lot of people don't wear their mask properly. 
you know, there's just a lot of different problems with the mass probably. So that's why, you know, people are saying to try to also space greater than six feet apart and try to be outside as much as possible where there's air currents and, you know, just the virus can kind of get diffused into the environment. The six feet comes more from the droplet transmission. When the virus is coming out in the little droplets, most of that falls within six feet of an individual. Got it. That makes sense. It's interesting because we're not really seeing a spike in numbers so far from the protests that have been happening in many cities across the U.S. and outside. And people are definitely not social distancing, but most of them wearing masks. So there is something to be said about that. I totally agree. I think masks are probably the most important thing. I think that's what we're seeing, you know, in the countries like in Asia that controlled this, you know, for the last few months, it was really kind of early institution of universal masking, where I think made probably the biggest difference. And that's why, I mean, at work, right? Like, you know, we have universal masking at the NIH hospital um, right now and in our building. And, you know, we can't be perfectly distanced all the time, right? We're seeing patients and doing things. And we're just wearing a surgical mask and not seeing uh, transmission from individuals to individual. You know, we also get tested very frequently at work too, to make sure that we're not asymptomatic carriers. Yeah, that was my next question. How has this all affected your job and your life in general? I tend to be a little bit more of a hypochondriac and other people would probably say more, you know, (laughs) more than other people. Um, If you talk to anyone I work with or my family or friends. So, you know, I would say at first, when everything first shut down, you know, in my non-work peers, right, we're all sitting at home, perfectly distanced from other people, not having any exposures, you know, it was kind of weird to be one of the few people that was having to go into work. And it was scary, right? We didn't really know what was going on. And, you know, were you going to pick up something at work? That was when we were learning about the asymptomatic carriers, you know, were we going to pick up things and bring them home and to our families? And I mean, I'm super lucky to be at NIH where we don't have an emergency room and we were able to test, you know, our patients for the most part from early on, but compared to most people working in hospitals where, you know, where there's ERs. And so a lot of the patients were positive. It's just very, very different, right? I mean, we just have a much more protected existence at NIH, but still like, you know, we just didn't know. I mean, where our coworkers can be giving it to us, you know, it was, it was very um, anxiety provoking at first. And especially at first when the recommendation was not to wear masks and we were walking around the hospital and seeing patients and seeing each other, not wearing masks and trying to be as distant as possible. But uh, since we started wearing the universal masks and since we had more data to see that we weren't all passing it amongst ourselves, then um, some of that anxiety really has come down. So I think there have been staff members that have been identified to be positive for the virus, but at least, you know, as of a couple of days ago, last I heard, there's been zero transmission from a staff member at NIH to a patient. So that's been really reassuring. That's huge. That's really huge. I mean, that's what I'm always telling, you know, my good friend who's in charge of our hospital, happy epidemiology. I mean, she's just doing such an awesome job, like keeping us all safe, you know, and there haven't been little outbreaks, you know, kind of when there have been staff members that have been positive amongst, because of course that's going to happen, right? I mean, we all live in this area and the surrounding counties have had lots and lots of cases. So of course, every once in a while, someone's going to turn out to be positive, but there haven't been outbreaks among the staff or transmission to the patients. So That's been really, really, really comforting and shows kind of how effective the mask can be. So, and then starting, let's see, maybe uh, over a month ago, 
they recommended all of us that are seeing patients are strongly encouraged to be tested, you know, with a nose swab once a week. So I now have gotten my nose swab done once a week for five weeks. I've been negative each time. But that also gives me a little bit more kind of comfort in terms of around my family. And, you know, I mean, the tests aren't perfect. You can't like get too comfortable. But I think just when you have like test after test after test that's negative, you begin to kind of feel a little bit better that you're not bringing things home or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And what other precautions are being taken at the hospital? And then, of course, with your division specifically. Every single day when we come into work, you know, when you pull in in your car before you can enter the parking lots or whatever, you're asked for any new symptom, you know, like, do you have a headache? Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Blah, blah, blah. So all those kind of symptoms. And then, of course, you're like, oh, gosh, I did have a little headache last night. But, you know, <laughs> headaches every once in a while, you know, like, what's TMI, you know, for thing at the thing. So I tend to tell them like everything and they're like, okay, okay. You know, you're allowed to have a headache every once in a while. So, you know, they do it by kind of what's different for you. And then, you know, for a little bit, they took our temperatures, but you know, that was being done outside and that did not last because I mean, these weren't like oral temps. They were doing like forehead or, you know, it's just not as accurate when you're outside. Well, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's really interesting how many restaurants and offices are starting to say, you know, you have to get your temperature checked before you walk in. But for people who are asymptomatic, what does that matter? Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. There's plenty of cases where people didn't have fever. So, um, so we're just asked for our symptoms. Now they're starting to ask us the night before we come to work too. So we're asked about our symptoms a lot. And then you're handed a mask, a surgical mask put on before you enter the building. And then you know, right now I'm sitting in my office with the door closed, so I don't have my mask on. But otherwise, I have my mask on all the time. You know, people have to go find somewhere. You don't have an office to eat away from people right now. Um, And then they really shut down everything at NIH. You know, we didn't know if we were going to have to help with kind of the local surge. So they tried to really minimize, you know, any patients up here, who we could bring in either for clinic or for outpatient, you know, we need to get it. It goes through multiple layers of approval. Everyone is supposed to be um, working from home if you can work from home. So our group was kind of rotating for a while who was coming in or not. Now we're beginning to come in a little bit more because we're in our first phase of kind of reopening here. So yeah, I mean, it's just a weird period, right? Like, everything's all topsy-turvy, you know? It's like a stressful period. You want to kind of see the people you work with and kind of be able to all kind of cope together. But, you know, it's like you're seeing them all virtually, just like, you know, around the world. A lot of people's work is like that now. But it's just for us, it's very different because it's, you know, it's a, it's a very hands-on job. And suddenly we're not seeing our nurses and our spectators, you know, our teams are kind of disrupted. One of the most fascinating parts of this to me is that the entire world is affected by this. And I can't think of a time where that's ever been the case, where no matter what it is, you know, you think about 9-11 or world wars, stuff like that, there have been many countries impacted. But the fact that this has hit every single inch of the world is so wild. Yeah. And I think it just makes it that much more extreme and intense and yet also brings everyone together to a certain degree. And yet we're so apart because we physically can't be together. Right. It's a really wild time. In your career, have you seen anything like this before? Oh, Obviously, yeah, there's no. been nothing on this scale. No, I mean, I've never seen anything like this at all. 
back when there was the couple Ebola cases in the United States, you know, we took some patients back then, you know, and they, we put them in the special unit where now we have um, the COVID-19 positive patients. But that was so different, right? That was something that we knew we could control, you know, the transmissibility. We know stuff about that virus. And I mean, this is so hard because we know about coronaviruses, but to have a novel type of coronavirus that is spreading this much around, I mean, it's just totally different for all of us. And the virus is just so weird how it has this kind of spread from some people being totally asymptomatic and some people being so deathly ill and dying, you know, it's just so different for us. And the amount of people that are asymptomatic that are potentially, or that we know are spreading virus. I mean, that's something that we're not used to dealing with either. I mean, which is just so anxiety producing that you just don't know if you could be passing on the virus to people, you know, like that's something we're not used to dealing with. And that's why the masks and staying six feet apart are so important because people don't even know. I mean, if you've only been to the grocery store and that's the only thing you've done all week, you have no idea if somehow you got it in the grocery store. Yeah. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp, by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's better com slash made visible. And now back to the show. You mentioned how the testing is not perfect, which is definitely very clear. What are your thoughts on the antibody test? And if that's valuable for especially people who are immunocompromised to be doing right now? Yeah, I think the antibody test still has a long way to go um, to really understand it in terms of a specific individual also, you know, I mean, there's a lot of antibody tests out there. There's some that seem to be a lot more accurate than others. But the problem is, you know, we know people who've had the infection who seem to have a functional immune system and don't have a positive antibody response. So it's like, are we doing the right assay? Like, are we looking for the right type of antibody? And then the antibody doesn't always last that long and what's protective and what's not protective. So You know, I think right now it's a little bit better in terms of being used for kind of more research and kind of more epidemiology than, you know, for individual patient care. I just think we're so far from understanding it. And then for people that are immune compromised, a lot of people that are immune compromised don't mount antibody responses normally anyways. I mean, some people that are immune compromised, depending on what type of immune compromised disease you have. Some people don't make any antibodies, you know, and some people don't make them as well or they don't last as long or whatever. So I find it much less helpful than getting tested when you're actually sick, which is the nose test, you know, or the the nose swabs and the throat swabs, which are better. And we know if you find the virus, we know that that means you have it, right? We don't see false positives with that. Um, The problem is that, you know, you really have to do the test, 
you know, in an effective way, which is not super comfortable, you know, and, and we know that there are times where you get a negative test, even though someone has it. Right, right, right. And so you said you're seeing a lot less patients than you typically do. Yeah. Most of them are staying home, but I know you're in communication with many of them. How are they navigating this time? It's been really stressful, I think, for everybody. You know, it's been interesting, right? Because our patients come from all over the country. So depending on where people were, it's also been very different. I mean, at first we got lots and lots of questions. Um, you know, everyone was very anxious and and it was hard, right? I mean, still it's hard because, you know, we don't know. Like I was just going to say, I remember emailing you in the early stages and you being like, I wish I had answers for you. Because why would you know? There's nothing to know yet. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, we we try to read, we try to, but, you know, most of our knowledge was the same that everyone else was like hearing on the news and stuff. So especially early on, I felt like everyone was reaching out to us and we're like, just, you know, try to be as safe as possible. You know, it's interesting because everyone was switching to telemedicine. Honestly, we've always done a lot of kind of telemedicine, right? Because our patients are all over the country. The difference was usually we can say, oh, and go in for blood work or go in and get that looked at. And everyone was terrified to leave their house and we didn't want them, you know, like to get all of those things. So I would say early on, we were sending out a lot of antibiotics to a lot of people that may or may not have been needed. But, you know, we were just trying to keep people from, you know, who might have a little skin infection or a little lung infection or whatever. We were just trying to keep everyone at home as much as possible. And then we were spending a ton of time initially just doing paperwork, right? Like, forms to try to keep our patients, you know, who are in jobs where it's hard to work from home that, you know, please make exceptions for our patients. And then that was all challenging, right? Because we were trying to do these things from home and we're, we're not used to doing home-based work. I mean, it was just logistics, like little silly things, like we didn't have fax machines at work and, you know, easy ways to do our, turn things into a PDF or whatever. I mean, it's all like, little things, you know, but it was all like new for us. Like I would come into work and Amanda, the nurse practitioner I work with, be like, okay, you know, we got to fax these things. Can you bring this down there or whatever? You know? <laughs> I think this is the perfect opportunity to be getting rid of fax machines and doing everything yeah. digitally. Come on, guys. I know. No, we are like totally backwards here. That's what I realized actually today. We have some faxes that immediately go to email, but others don't. And I was like, I haven't seen anything on our fax machine for a couple months. So I just fixed our fax machine today <laughs> at a program. And I just got like two months of faxes and realized that, you know, our person that like goes and gets the mail for our group had been brought home the key for that at the beginning of the whole telework period. Again, not thinking that anything would be going on so long. So Finally, I was like, gosh, you know, some of my patients have told me they're supposed to get things in the mail and I haven't. So <laughs> that's been my job this week also is cleaning out our mailboxes for our whole group of offices and things like that. Anyway, so, you know, there's been all these challenging, but, you know, it's it's been really stressful for, our, I think, our patients, right? I mean, our patients already are dealing with chronic disease and then having this unknown thing going around and semi-elective surgeries that were canceled. When can you do that again? Is it okay to see, you know, your family members? Is it okay to start doing, you know, all those questions like that we're all asking ourselves, like, at what point can I see a family member? If I sit outside and see the family member, can I do this? Can I drive to this place? You know, we don't know, but we're trying to use our combination of common sense and kind of what we do know now to try to help people make decisions. But yeah, it's been really hard. Everyone's been learning together. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the really interesting part, as I said, is that you don't know that many more answers than I do in doing right. the research on my own and just sort of staying in the know through Dr. Fauci and through all the people who, you know, seem to be studying this as closely as they can. So we talked a bit about the testing and the antibody test. Let's discuss the vaccine concept a little bit. Do you have any sense of how the vaccine will be distributed? Just a little bit. So, you know, first of all, I mean, I think we're all totally counting on this vaccine. Then we all get anxious, right? Like, I hope this vaccine works out. You know, I mean, I mean, my entire life, I'm like, okay, so when the vaccine comes out, here's the list of things I will be doing in this order. (laughs) I know. So it's all a little bit anxiety producing, right? We're like, oh, gosh, you know, it's looking good in the animal studies. Um, Some of the vaccine, you know, the initial kind of um, immunologic responses are good. But things like flu vaccines, you know, I mean, although we have a good flu vaccine each year. It's not great, right? So, I mean, it's all a little bit anxiety producing. So I think, you know, the hope is that ideally kind of by early 2021, I mean, that's when we're hoping that we'll have a vaccine that's more available, but none of us have ever seen a vaccine trying to be developed so quickly either. Um, And they're doing it in good, safe ways, but, you know, just taking advantage of a lot of different kind of prediction models and other things about where outbreaks are happening or going to happen to try to plan their big studies to get both efficacy data as well as safety data. But it's really interesting hearing people talk about the development of the vaccine and, you know, how do you decide to do the tests? I mean, who to vaccinate to kind of get all those answers as quickly as you can? What are those current answers? Like, you know, different kind of models of how they can watch where outbreaks are happening and predicting where the next outbreak is going to happen. So you can try to target those populations to test the vaccine in so that you can actually get a hint of whether or not the vaccine is beginning to work. Because, you know, there's this big kind of ethical question about there's certain vaccine studies that people do where they actually give the person the infection and then look and see whether or not it's effective, right? But whether or not that will ever happen with this, we don't know because we don't have a good way of making sure that it's safe. And, you know, in terms of we don't have a perfect way to treat people if they get sick, right? Like they've done that with other, some other infections like malaria or flu or whatever, where you give the person the actual, the vaccination and then they give them the infection. But that's in cases where we know we have like pretty good therapies. Right. We don't really have answers in this situation to be able to treat them if they do end up getting the condition. Right. So they're more trying to figure out how to target where the next outbreak is going to happen by, you know, like, where are people Googling about, like, where do I get testing? You know, it's like looking for signs of an outbreak. Like, where are people suddenly buying a lot more Tylenol, you know? And, you know, there's all these different things that they're trying to kind of look at to try to figure out where to target the next, um, who should be vaccinated and making sure that the vaccination is also being studied and kind of some of the high risk populations, right? I mean, this virus has been hitting the African-American community and the um, Latino community, you know, really hard. So making sure that those populations are being targeted as well as older people, younger people, whatever. So anyways, um, if we have a vaccine that's looking safe and efficacious, then the hope is, you know, that that will be available by early 2021. And then I think what they'll do is first target, you know, the high risk populations, which is some of the high risk healthcare workers, like hopefully people like paramedics and the nurses in the emergency rooms and the doctors in the emergency rooms, doctors in critical care units, 
So healthcare workers, as well as some of the higher risk populations, you know, which in this setting will include the older people, the people with the high risk conditions like the high blood pressures and the diabetes and the heart disease. And somewhere in there will also come the immune compromised individuals. So I think that will be the plan. And then when it will get to the general community, I just don't know. I mean, they've never really done this as far as I know before, that they're actually having the companies, you know, with the vaccines that are looking promising, make tons of, you know, millions and millions and millions of doses in anticipation that it's going to work. So wow, companies are putting out tons of money and just hoping that, you know, it pans out and hopefully they're getting enough support for that. I don't really, I don't know that part of it. That's pretty nuts. Well, and I think, you know, obviously to your point, it is really scary because we don't really know what the response will be. We think that the flu shot is pretty good. I've gotten it every year. You know, luckily it felt pretty good during the Mm -hmm. winter months, but we don't really know the information there. So I think that's the scariest part is I'm basically saying, okay, when Dr. Freeman calls and says you can get this vaccine, I'm running if you trust it. Right. But it's one of those things where like, do you really know that it's the safest thing for me? You don't. Yeah. So, and there's all different types of vaccines that are being tested. Some of the phase three studies are supposed to be starting next month. One of them is supposed to be, you know, that NIH is is involved with this starting next month, you know, where they'll be giving it to lots and lots of people then to try to get some safety data. And um, most of these vaccines that are being studied, most of them are not kind of the live viral vaccines where, you know, you worry a little bit more about whether or not, you know, it'd be safe for someone who's immune compromised. Yeah, absolutely. It's really scary, all of it. Um, you mentioned a really good point, which is, or not a good point, an unfortunate point is that COVID has disproportionately affected many people of color in this country. So I'm yeah. wondering what role you think physicians can play in helping to eradicate systemic inequalities that have contributed to this. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really brought that to the forefront. Um, I mean, it's just that when you do see that data, I mean, it's just, it's really hard. A lot of these communities that were suffering already for other reasons too, you know, but also within those populations, sometimes there has been a higher incidence of some of the hypertension or, you know, diabetes, and there hasn't been great access to healthcare sometimes, you know, health insurance issues. I mean, you know, our country still suffers from a lot of trouble with access to care, where things like high blood pressure and diabetes and diseases like that would be better managed. And things like access to healthy food, you know, to try to prevent some of these diseases. So I just think the public health needs are becoming so much more apparent and the ability to access care in some of these communities is so much more apparent. And I mean, I'm hoping the awareness about that will then continue on to having better healthcare, you know, just access. I mean, it's a huge problem. I mean, this it's like a public health problem. Yeah, it really is. And my sense is that right now, although this is all being discussed and addressed, I think that we are on the path to change, that it's not just like a moment in time. It's like some serious stuff is going to happen over time to create more change for people of color in general and especially in the health system. I really hope so. I think so. I do think there is kind of, it's just getting like impossible to ignore a lot of these issues, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Is there anything that we didn't address that you want to make sure we addressed? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's an evolving stressful time for all and 
just hope everyone stays as safe and careful as possible. And uh, it's been hard to see politics kind of get involved in this whole situation. And I mean, this is really a public health disaster we're dealing with right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you majorly for number one, being accessible to me so often. And number two, doing the work that you do. And number three, for taking the time to chat with me today. Please take care of yourself and your family and your team. And I look forward to the day that I am able to safely get back to the NIH and see you guys. Uh, Well, thank you so much for um, inviting me to speak and I'm happy to anytime. And I definitely look forward to the times when we can get back to seeing our patients regularly again, too. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.